Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello everybody, welcome back to Finance and History, the podcast of the European Association for Banking and Financial History. My name is Carmen Hofmann and I'm the Secretary General of the Association. My guest today is Larry Neal. He is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Illinois, as well as a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research and a member of the Academic Council of EABH. He specializes in financial history and European economies, and amongst many other works, he is the author of The Rise of Financial Capitalism, International Capital Markets in the Age of Reason, and A Concise History of International Finance, From Babylon to Pernanke. Welcome, Larry. Our topic today is financing the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson's Great Gamble or Hamilton's Lasting Legacy, a paper in which you want to emphasize the underrated role of individuals in financial history compared to the role of political actors. Before we start, would you like to quickly tell us about your sources, in particular, the archive you used most, the Bering Archive? I'm very happy to do that. I have to admit that many years ago, I did visit the Bering Archive uh, at the recommendation of John Orbell, who was getting everything in order at the archive at that time. It must be 30 years ago now. I went in order to find out evidence of capital movements from the European continent during the Napoleonic Wars. I figured they had to come to Britain to be invested in the 3% consuls because London was the basic go-to uh, market at that time. And bearings, I knew, were really important international investment bankers. So if there's going to be evidence of capital movements from the European continent to London, they should go through somebody like bearings. So I spent a whole day going through the files. And to my amazement, what I found was evidence of capital movements from the United States to France, quite the opposite from what I was looking for. I was disappointed. I left. As I uh, was uh, being escorted out, the archivist said, well, since you're an American, do you know we have a lot of material on the Louisiana Purchase? Somebody should look at that someday. <laughs> so 30 years later, I um, arranged a visit with Clara Harrow, the archivist of Bearings. She did pull out a large folder of materials that had been put together very carefully at the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase back in 1903. So here I was in the 21st century uh, looking at these materials, which were very carefully organized by Lord Northbrook at the time. And I faithfully, under the direction of Clara, photographed all of the materials. They've since been digitized as part of the digitization project at Bearings, and I have transcribed all of those documents in the Louisiana Purchase folder. Okay, excellent. So it only took you 30 years to <laughs> finally get to looking at the papers. 
Before we get right into the topic, let us look at the general context of your story, the general historical setting. It's a story of empires, right? Of financing war and risk and reward in uncertain times. So basically, we're going to look at what is happening on both sides of the Atlantic. It's the end of the 18th, the early days of the 19th century. So the political revolutions of the Atlantic world that started in 1775 with the Boston Tea Party. From there, slave revolts spread throughout the West Indies and the other um, United States with renewed intensity after August 91, when news of the uprisings in the French colony of Saint-Domingue spread throughout the Atlantic trading world. And then we have the example of the US independence from the most powerful naval force in Europe. And of course, that made the hold of the other European powers, Denmark, France, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain, increasingly tenuous. Whilst on the other side, in Europe, Napoleon Bonaparte rose to prominence as a military and political leader during the French Revolution and led several successful campaigns during the ensuing revolutionary wars. It was a time of constant military struggle between the old empires as much as with the newly independent states for power and influence over continents and sea routes. Financing these wars was demanding and it was an era of continuous shocks for international finance. But what you say is that in this environment of financial instability, there seemed to be a structural advantage for the financial systems of the Netherlands and the UK where the protagonists of your story of the Louisiana Purchase will emerge from. Would you like to tell us a little bit about this structural advantage of the UK and the Netherlands financial systems? An excellent context that you've given there for the historical background, which is something I should work on myself if I ever get this into a book form. But the characters that I want to focus on emerge from the Bering Archive. And the two principal giants, really, of the financial world at the time are from Amsterdam, Henry Hope, who is the lead partner of Hope and Company. Early on, when the French forces are coming in to menace the Netherlands, and in the Netherlands, there's a political response to revolt and take advantage of what they see as the coming of the French Revolution and the ideas of the French Revolution overthrowing the powers of the landed elite, uh, Henry Hope decides that uh, things don't look good for him. And so he departs from the Netherlands and settles in London, on the outskirts of London. That uh, is a welcome departure by the patriot leaders in the Netherlands at the time. It's also a very welcome visit by his closest partner in London, with whom he's had good relationship for many years previous, and that's Sir Francis Baring. So we have these two giants, Henry Hope, originally from Amsterdam, where he'd been the leading merchant banker, Sir Francis Baring in London. And now from 1793 on, we have the two of them combining forces from time to time on various opportunities that they see mutually advantageous. In the background, what I found in going through the Bering archives was that at that very time, Sir Francis becomes quite interested in the refinancing of American debt, the project that had been undertaken by Alexander Hamilton uh, with the beginning of the Constitution 
and the establishment of the first bank of the United States. The key for Hamilton was to take on for the federal government the responsibility of servicing all of the accumulated debts that the individual colonies had acquired in the course of fighting the Revolutionary War. That was quite an amazing thing to do. But what Hamilton did as the counterpart of that was to take control of these external sources of uh, tax revenues for the individual colonies. No longer could they collect their own customs revenues. They had to turn over customs revenues to federal agents. And to me, this was the key thing in Hamilton's uh, innovation. Other people have emphasized absorption of the state debts, consolidating all of those into the federal debt. Others have talked about the importance of the first national bank. Others have talked about the importance of stabilizing the American dollar, the United States dollar, at the same basis as the Spanish dollar at the time. But I think the real key was giving control of the federal revenues through customs agents that were federal employees and assigned to uh, collect customs revenues in each, each state. That meant that the existing federal debt instruments, the so-called continentals, would now start to rise in value as Hamilton's system went into effect. So what happens is that Sir Francis Baring sets up a tontine scheme to give British investors and uh, the partners of uh, Henry Hope, who had come to London at the time, an opportunity to take advantage of the rise in value of these American securities, which were now being bought up by Dutch investors and by British investors, and all put into this called the Tontine, which was guaranteed to give different uh, rates of return to different individuals, depending on how old they were, essentially a, a form of life insurance annuity. So that's really what begins the interest of bearings in particular in American securities. It's a part of Alexander Hamilton's scheme to create public credit. But so far as I can tell, American historians have not paid attention to the Tontine arrangement that he suggested as part of his uh, report. It turns out it's the Barings who actually do take up and uh, and market the Tontine in the London market. That's very interesting because as well, it was like quite a well-received coincidence that, you know, these two personalities from the most advanced financial systems in Europe, which were in the Netherlands and Great Britain in mid-17th century, because they already had over time established their legitimacy by creating new financial systems that benefited both their domestic economies and the military strength because they had a public bank, a funded sovereign debt readily traded on stock exchanges and a stable unit of account for domestic money supply. I mean, I'm quoting your paper here. So all of these three features had to function within a stable legal and political system. So both hope and bearing were coming from the right background to readily receive this new option of public credit that was available there in the United States. So now how did those two personalities arrived to finance the Louisiana Purchase, which is what you call an unprecedented financial deal. We have to make our listeners aware that 
we're not only talking about the territory of what is today Louisiana, we're basically talking about doubling the size of the um, United States at the time. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about what exactly um, was the Louisiana Purchase and which territory um, are we talking about and how did it come about that the two European bankers, Henry Hope and Sir Francis Baring, came to, to finance the biggest land purchasing deal that has ever been made in history? Yes, it is a story that uh, goes back to individuals becoming aware of these uh, uh, possibilities and uh, making contact through young people, actually, who happened to be traveling around during the period when there was a temporary peace between Britain and in France, the truce of uh, Amiens, which started actually in October of 1802. And what happens at that time is that Napoleon is happy to have a period of relative peace so he can consolidate his uh, gains, which have been substantial, and uh, also take back this revolting colony, uh, Saint-Domingue, in the Caribbean. And also, in the background, he has arranged with Spain to get back the whole territory of the Louisiana territory that France had ceded to Spain at the end of the American War of Independence. So this is a deal that nobody really knew much about. He kept it secret just between France and Spain. But the idea was if he got back this whole territory, the main point of which was the port of New Orleans, which was the entry point for the entire Mississippi River drainage uh, for the interior of the United States, all the way up to what's now the Canadian, actually into the Canadian border and going to the Rocky Mountains to the west. But the key was New Orleans. And then settlers from the United States had started coming into Kentucky and Tennessee after the Treaty of Paris in 1783. They found, once they were on that side of the Appalachian Mountains, that the only way they could really get to market with their products was down the Mississippi, down the Ohio River, into the Mississippi and through New Orleans. And from New Orleans, they could then export goods any place in the world, especially to uh, the West Indies. Unfortunately, in 1802, the Spanish, who were still in control of New Orleans, decided to close off the access to the port to Americans, basically to try to charge really high rates of uh, storage costs and uh, import to the Americans trying to use New Orleans as a event for their products. That then gave the Americans the idea, hey, we need to open up New Orleans. How are we going to do that? At the time, a visitor to the U.S., Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours, suggested, why don't you make him an offer. France needs money, and it would be a lot cheaper to buy New Orleans, giving them a, a nice offer, rather than mounting a military expedition, going down and taking New Orleans by force. So it's really a letter that Pierre Samuel Dupont uh, to Nemours suggests to Jefferson 
by New Orleans and uh, see if uh, that won't work. So we have Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours coming to France during this period of uh, relative peace. He can come back um, where, and actually he stays in France for much of the uh, Napoleonic period, uh, the entire Napoleonic period thereafter. He delivers a letter, a proposal to the then American minister in Paris, Robert Robert Livingston, R.R. Livingston. And he had been in Paris for a year from the beginning of Jefferson's administration, trying to get the French to pay back money that they owed to American merchants whose ships had been seized by French privateers during a brief period called the Quasi War between France and the United States. It's a very unusual episode because presumably France had financed the American independence in the first place. They were both revolutionary governments. They should have been really close friends. But during this quasi-war, French privateers actually did take a large number of American ships and uh, sold off their cargoes for their own profit in various ports in France. So Livingston was trying to get compensation for that. Well, here comes DuPont with a letter suggesting from Jefferson that they buy New Orleans. Livingston puts it aside because he doesn't have any precise authority from Jefferson or Madison, who's the Secretary of State, to do this. So he puts it aside. What happens next is William Bingham, a major political figure in the United States, and at the time the richest man in the United States, was visiting London within the company of his son-in-law, Alexander Baring, and uh, he uh, decided that he would visit France during this period of uh, peace and the, the, the truce of Amiens. And in the course of that, he does learn from Livingston about this proposal from DuPont, and he passes it on to his son, Alexander Baring, who comes over to visit the family in Paris at the end of 1802. So this is it's all setting up an idea, which then goes into a letter, which is the first opening in the document in the Bering Archive, a letter from Alexander Bering in Paris in January of 1803 to his brother-in-law, Pierre César Labouchere, in Amsterdam. And he lays out a proposal then very much on the lines of uh, DuPont's uh, idea for the United States to make a nice offer to France to purchase New Orleans. And the US could finance the purchase, around $10 million was the initial figure given by issuing bonds. And there'd already been a successful uh, marketing of U.S. bonds, thanks to Hamilton's refunding of American debt. And then from the sale of those bonds, uh, sell off more quickly than uh, bills of exchange on a short-term credit to the French government, giving them money up front very quickly for the bonds that would be sold off to individuals in Amsterdam and London, Paris and in that way, finance the purchase of New Orleans. So that's the beginning of the argument. Now, that, that's really interesting how you describe how this idea started. And then once the stone was rolling, it it, it rolled from the United States to Paris and, and then back. And 
I mean, as far as I understand the the, the really um, outstanding part is that there was no formal bill prepared and there was no payment ever directly made in dollars by the US to France in order to transfer New Orleans from France to the United States because both countries' governments did not have well-established, um, credible record of financial commitments. So in the process of negotiating the, the details of the Louisiana Purchase, both countries trusted a private third party or like a corporation of private third parties as credible intermediaries capable of taking on the risk that either sovereign government might find preferable not to take on. So I thought that was really a revealing um, part of this arrangement. So we have already learned who initiated the deal and, and that the reasons might be that the Americans were very keen on taking on the control over the Port of New Orleans and that Napoleon, once he decided in favor of focusing his military expansions um, within Europe, needed money to do so. However, given that these were really uncertain times and the risk of such a deal were incredibly high. Can you tell me why would the, the houses of Bering and Hope take on this risk and this responsibility of financing the Louisiana Purchase? And in the end, was it worth the risk? Did they profit from organizing this deal for the both countries? One of the reasons this whole story has been put aside or more or less ignored is that in retrospect, it looks like a tremendous deal for the United States and for the bankers who set up the initial financing. At the time, however, everybody knew that war was going to break out again. And who knew what was going to happen in that uh, situation? One of the things that Henry Hope, I think, probably in the background could understand would be advantageous for the bankers. Remember, this is the richest capitalist on the continent of Europe who has essentially taken his total assets, his stock of capital, which is immense. I mean, he had probably the world's finest uh, collection of masterpieces of paintings, which he then set up in a palatial estate in East Sheen on the outskirts of London. He knew that other people wanted to get their assets out of reach of Napoleon's forces as they were coming across Europe and destroying the existing property rights of guilds and uh, aristocrats and cities throughout Europe. And the attempt then to safeguard the accumulated assets meant coming to assets like American uh, securities that would be serviced by foreign government out of reach of Napoleon's forces. And so in that way, the credibility of Hamilton's sovereign debt for the United States was Henry Hope could see was very, would be very attractive to people trying to get flight capital out of Europe. So in that sense, I'm back to my original motivation of going to the Bering Archive to see what's the basis for flight capital coming out of Europe into England and not just into American securities, but ultimately to British securities, to the fantastic increase in British national debt, which then ramps up in the course of the Napoleonic Wars. Basically, you're saying that Henry Hope was the Elon Musk of that time, right? 
because in this period of constant war, of complete insecurity, he puts all his personal and professional assets on this endeavor to basically do business with a newly founded revolutionary state. It sounds, if you put it in context, like trying to settle on Mars. In retrospect, it was a way to provide a safe haven for all the investors that were faced with expropriation, extortion, and execution in Europe and provide access um, to assets for them. So this was a, as a worthy challenge for this new class of international financial intermediaries, the merchant bankers of Europe. And as well, in retrospect, this seems to be like the start of the long-lasting legacy of the houses of Bering, but, but not only them, because basically they initiated the international sovereign debt market. And um, I quote you here when you say the lessons they learned along the way, moreover, laid the basis for the future success of sovereign bond financing for governments able to tap into the international capital market of the 19th century that followed. And moreover, this was the financial breakthrough that enabled later the success of the houses of Rothschild brothers to market other sovereign bonds, such as the Prussian loan of 1818 with Louisiana bonds were being successfully paid off in Amsterdam and London. W would you agree on that? Of course I agree. <laughs> Will other people agree with me? I'm not so sure, but uh, I did uh, note in the uh, footnote that you did not cite that uh, the website for the Rothschild archives claims that they initiated uh, the international marketing of sovereign debt with the Prussian bonds in 1818. The problem with that is that American bonds are, uh, are being uh, listed in the course of the exchange, the official price list for the London Stock Exchange as early as February 1811. And the interesting thing there is that they continue to be cited and quoted in each issue of the course of the exchange, which comes out twice a week, all through the War of 1812. So even though Britain and the United States are very much at war with each other from the middle of 1812 until the end of 1814, and actually until March of 1815, when the final peace is, is done, American bonds are being traded on the London Stock Exchange. So it is the start of the international market. The problem, of course, is that those bonds are short-term bonds, as American bonds have been ever since. So they get paid off. And then the question is, how are you going to replace your investment? Will there be new U.S. bonds to go into, or will there be other bonds that have a comparable uh, security? It's clearly the case that the corporation was successful. The purchase um, was approved. It, it was how it went. They profited from it in a monetary way, so they had returns from it. But as well, it was the start of a longer-lasting cooperation between the two houses, because Bering and Hope, they underwrote the reconstruction loan to France in 1817. And as well, they collaborated in what you call the, the Mexican silver proposal, um, which I thought was quite an, an interesting story to tell for probably our European listeners who don't know that part of history so well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about this proposal? Well, yes, this was a fascinating uh, sidelight that uh, it's not in the original document of the Louisiana Purchase, but uh, thanks to the digitization in the Bering Archive, I found not only those materials on the Louisiana Purchase, but also the material on the Tontine that got Bering's into investment in American securities 
well before the Louisiana Purchase. Then it's through the efforts of their Amsterdam affiliate, which gets set up again in Amsterdam starting in 1802. And in 1803, it really gets set up a branch back in Amsterdam. But it's not Henry Hope. Henry Hope stays in London, but he sets up his chief clerk, Pierre César Labouchere, who becomes my hero uh, in the rest of the uh, story here, to uh, manage the affairs for Hope and Company in Amsterdam. And Pierre César does a tremendous job. He is brilliant. And he pulls off earlier a deal with uh, Portugal, which actually I realized after getting into the Bering Archive, the Louisiana Purchase Financing wasn't actually totally new procedure for them because they did something quite similar with Portugal uh, the year before they did the uh, Louisiana Purchase, basically marketing long-term bonds, which would be paid off in 10 years to be sold to investors in Amsterdam and London, backed by the security of uh, tax revenues in, by Portugal, as well as a monopoly on diamonds from Brazil that the Portuguese could uh, maintain. In return for which, then Napoleon would get very short-term payments in a period of less than three years for these bonds that would be paid off at the end of 10 years. So this is something that uh, Pierre Cesar is doing. And then he has the Louisiana Purchase. He's very successful with that. He gets uh, two different uh, Dutch firms to go in with him on uh, sharing basically the risks that they were taking for marketing these bonds. And the success just looks terrific to the French. And then the chief French financier, Gabriel Julien Ouvroard, goes to Spain and says, you know, Spain, you could really be paying off uh, Napoleon the, the way Portugal has. You've got all of these silver coins that are being minted in Mexico based on the Mexican silver mines. And they're just accumulating in Mexico because you can't ship them out due to the control of the seas by the British Navy. Why don't you do this? Give me the control of your trade with uh, the Spanish Empire and uh, we'll provision you, but uh, I also want to have monopoly on the imports of goods from Mexico, especially the Mexican silver. And he does, he gets uh, an agreement and he gets official documents from Charles IV of uh, Spain to demand substantial payments in coin or in uh, bars of silver from the Viceroy of Mexico. And he has those. But how to get that silver into Europe? So Uvard visits Pierre César in Amsterdam and presents him this opportunity to share in the, uh, the deal. At that point, it turns out in the background, Pierre César has been cut out of what he thought would be his share of the profits from the sale of the Louisiana bonds. So he's looking for an opportunity and uh, he can see this. So he proposes this to make amends with Sir Francis, who's gotten very upset with uh, Pierre instead of 
letting Pierre get away with two thirds of the uh, profits. Uh, Sir Francis insists on letting him only have half uh, the uh, share of the profits. But what Sir Francis has to do is then to convince William Pitt to give orders to British men of war, the British ships and the British privateers, giving safe passage to neutral ships, especially American ships, that could then ship the Mexican silver or Mexican loose out of Mexico, out of the Spanish Empire, into wherever, but ultimately trying to get the silver back to Europe. That's the deal. And it works out. At this time, Sir Francis agrees, but says, absolutely, we have to share the profits half and half. That begins this Mexican silver scheme, which I've been trying to track down. I still think the best source on this is from one of the agents that Pierre Cesar hired to go to New Orleans to oversee the collection of the uh, accounts. And uh, Vincent Nolte's memoirs, Memoirs of a Merchant in Both Hemispheres over 50 Years, gives a full account of the Mexican silver scheme. And later historians, especially Carlos Marshall in Mexico, has uh, brought together a lot of uh, excellent material uh, to show that the amount of silver that is initiated by Ouvrard and uh, Labouchere continues then for quite some time over the course of the Napoleonic Wars. So this is one of the ways of financing, ultimately, not just Napoleon's forces initially in Spain, which was the intent of Ouvrard, but also, it turns out, thanks to the intervention of Bering's, Wellington's forces, which are getting supplied by American merchant ships, bringing in supplies from the United States paid for by the Mexican silver, again, the start of the Bering Labuschere Mexican silver scheme. Isn't that amazing how there is always another story to the story? <laughs> so if I understand that correctly, what happened in the end was another scheme was that while Mexico was part of the Spanish Empire, the English would ship Mexican silver for a very long time out of Mexico under the protection of American ship in order then to support the English fighting against the Americans. You mentioned Marical and um, I like very much how you phrased that he says the continued extraction of resources from the Spanish Empire, especially from Mexico, eventually led to the bankruptcy of both Spain and Mexico. And in the process, however, the trade was lubricated for both British and American merchants with the backing of Mexican silver. That's really interesting. I recently went to Mexico City and I went to the archives and the, the Museum of the Mint of Mexico, the Casa de Moneda, which I think probably you could find more materials on, on these kinds of um, schemes and um, processes there. They have an excellent museum and all the machines they used for minting and minting the silver into coins, they're still there. So you could go there and turn on the factory again, and you could continue to mint Mexican silver there. And most of the machinery is actually from the UK. And I was wondering why, why that would be the case, given that the common knowledge is that, you know, Mexico was part of the Spanish empire. But I think, you know, it, it has to do with exactly this, that it was basically an English business to take the silver out of Mexico. Is, is that a, a correct estimate of the situation? I defer to Marshall <laughs> on this. I will say I have a former student from Illinois, Catalina Vizcarra, who's uh, 
professor of economics in the University of Vermont. She's from Peru, so she's very interested in this, and uh, uh, she's been uh, working on the Mexican mint records as well as the Peruvian mint records and uh, the supply of uh, materials from the Peruvian vice royalty as well as the Mexican vice royalty. There's a little bit of uh, tension there since she's touting the uh, virtues of and the importance of the Peru <laughs> Peruvian silver <laughs> versus the Mexican silver. But uh, no, I think this is a terrific uh, research opportunity for younger people. I couldn't agree more. I think that there's a lot of things um, still to be looked at uh, there. So um, through the lens of a 21st century historian, what's the one key takeaway from the story of the Louisiana Purchase? It was a uh, high risk. It paid off enormously for the financiers. But the lessons then were very difficult for people to really grasp and implement and imitate successfully. So in earlier work, um, there's an effort by um, Jose Cardozo and Pedro Lenz. They put together Paying for the Liberal State comparison of how the individual countries in Europe uh, trying to learn from the lessons of the financing the uh, Napoleonic Wars. It turns out all of them recognized that Britain did something right. They managed to accomplish something. And the thing was, depending on the perspective of the individual country and its leaders, some would say, well, they had a constitutional monarchy. So that's what we need is a constitutional monarchy. Others would say, well, they had a very powerful, influential public bank. So we need a public bank. Everybody set up a public bank trying to imitate what um, Britain had accomplished with the Bank of England, thinking that was the key to the success of British finance. Others thought, well, no, it's the Navy, clearly. Uh, so and to support the Navy, they had these overseas colonies. So we need colonies or we need a Navy. So I think that the idea of marketing sovereign debt just never really occurred <laughs> to, to any of them. But to me, that was really the key for uh, the eventual success. And one of the aspects of, that I found for me was interesting in looking at the Bering Archive, the bonds that Sir Francis told his son, Alexander Baring, to have the United States print up for distribution to his clients were amazing. And he said it had over 5,000 individual bonds printed up in 13 different denominations of dollars, ranging from as low as $100 to as much as $5,000. And the distribution of those bonds implies the kind of customer base, the distribution of a customer base for sovereign bonds or for secure bonds savings that existed at the time. And it's a market that Sir Francis knew existed and Henry Hope knew existed from their previous experience with marketing sovereign bonds and uh, these uh, long-term debt instruments to their respective customer bases. So it's the customer base that gets ignored. Very difficult for the countries trying to imitate the success of Britain to say, well, we're, how do we get that customer base? That is indeed very interesting when you say that the real strategic advantage you see is 
the customer base on the one side that there is already a market for this type of product of, of people that have bought that before, but as well this brand of Sir Francis Baring, right? The, the person that takes on the risk with the assets of his business and brands them as a product of his company and finds enough customers to buy like something as risky as the bond of a newly established state that is closely to go to war. Um, I would think it's a little bit like selling future residency permits for Mars. And then, but as long as you find enough people who buy them, you probably can finance the mission. That's a very interesting perspective, I think. So what's next? Where is your research headed from here? I have to say, talking with you has been very helpful to give me ideas how to frame the presentation of this material. And I'm going to send it off to various publishers, uh, I'm, I'm hoping, before the summer is over. And uh, then I've found with all my previous works that I, I enter the equivalent of a postpartum depression, which I have to work myself out of somehow. Fortunately, I have uh, signed up for a project that uh, Jari Eloranta in Finland has uh, initiated, which would be an encyclopedic uh, history of war, and particularly of war finance. And my contribution would be basically to compare the lessons that individual countries were experimenting with thanks to the interventions of Henry Hope and Sir Francis Baring during the course of the uh, Napoleonic Wars and uh, compare how those performed uh, at the conclusion of the uh, uh, of the wars. So that'll be uh, getting into other people's work that uh, have uh, looked at the individual uh, countries in, in much greater detail uh, following the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, that, that's certainly interesting times to, to take a comparative look at um, war and finance. I mean, there, there has always been a strong tie between the, the two of them. Well, I wish you best of luck with the book. Thank you very much for telling us about this exceptional story of transatlantic history. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.